Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, I was reading an article uh, just the other day, and it was in the, it's from the Washington Examiner, and the title of it is, The Great Reset is Very Real and a Grave Threat to Democracy. I'm going to read this to you. Not every global conspiracy of wealthy elites bent on world domination has its own publicly available website, but The Great Reset proposed by members of the World Economic Forum is an exception, complete with a published list of co-conspirators, including Amazon, Google, Huawei, I think that's how you pronounce it, Technologies, Saudi Aramco, and Volkswagen. The Great Reset launched in June 2020 with a mission statement that reads as follows. The COVID-19, this is their statement, the COVID-19 crisis and the political, economic, and social disruptions it has caused is fundamentally changing the traditional context for decision-making. As we enter a unique window of opportunity to shape the recovery, this initiative will offer insights to help inform all those determining the future state of global relations, the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of a global commons. Drawing from the vision and vast expertise of the leaders engaged across the forum's communities, the Great Reset Initiative has a set of dimensions to build a new social contract that honors the dignity of every human being. And then the, the writer of this article makes this comment. When the World Economic Forum talks about leaders and their expertise, they're not talking about the democratically elected leaders of sovereign nations. They are talking about the offers, excuse me, about the officers of the global corporations that make up the forum's communities. So it's interesting. The World Economic Foundation founder, Klaus Schwab, wrote in a book, and you might have heard this because I know it was out in the news fire. It's a book he wrote entitled The Great Reset. That's where you'll own nothing and be happy. And you'll notice that he said that's when you'll own nothing. Not, not, that's when we'll all own nothing because, you know, they'll own or will own nothing, but we'll be happy about it. You see, this Great Reset... The World Economic Forum is trying to push is for the benefit of the very few wealthy and the very few powerful individuals. It's not for the benefit of everyone else. And the reason why I bring that up this morning is how opposite is that of our Savior? Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Right? God coming down, becoming a man, dying on the cross for our sins, humbling himself to become a man, to pay the price for our sins. But you know, to be honest with you, the concept of a reset is appealing. It really is. You don't like the way things are going, man, it'd be nice to just start all over. You know, the word reset means to set, to adjust, or to fix in a new or different way. Wouldn't we all like the opportunity for a do-over? 
You know, the kids play games, you know, the video games. It's like they got all these lives, you know, the Super Mario Brothers. They kept hitting those, shows you my age, right? They, keep, they, sh they hit these bricks and they get all these lives and so they get wiped out. Hey, I, that's right, I got eight more lives, you know. Um, that's an appealing thing. Well, in Genesis chapter 6, that's the first passage we're going to look at. And if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, if you have your Bibles with you. In Genesis chapter 6, God looked at the wickedness of man and decided that a great reset was in order. And I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. There's what's interesting to note in that passage. You know, people often associate God's judgment with actions, with our actions, right? In other words, if I do good or if I'm at least not as bad as the next guy, God will overlook my faults. But like this verse that I just read points out, God looks at the heart, the heart of man. And what does he see? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, when I think of myself, I think I'm a pretty nice guy. But, you know, when I compare myself to God's word, I go, man, I don't stack up. I don't measure up to his holiness. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's a misconception that people have. People think that um, they're sinners uh, because they sin. In other words, if I just didn't sin, I wouldn't be a sinner. But the reality is we sin because we are sinners. It's a heart issue. There's a heart problem that manifests itself in our actions. And unfortunately, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this reset that God was going to do back that's described in Genesis chapter 6, it would result in the death of almost every, of almost the entire population of the earth at that time. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. But then there's another verse in there. Genesis 6, chapter, uh, verse 8, excuse me. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I love that verse. It's the first mention of grace in the Bible. Grace means unmerited favor. Actually, God's unmerited favor. And so God looked upon Noah with grace. Noah didn't earn grace. God extended grace to Noah. Paul said this in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. John Corson says this, No other religion or philosophy provides unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Every other religion, every other philosophy says there are things we must do, devotional exercises, good deeds, or righteous acts to earn blessings from Allah or to gain favor from Buddha. Only biblical Christianity says it's all grace. 
Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And so Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but God's grace had an impact on his life. In verse 9 there of chapter 6, it says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begat, uh, begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I want to just take a couple minutes and look at that. First of all, Noah was a just man. What does that mean, just? doesn't mean he was just a man, but he was just man. That means someone or something is considered to be just or righteous because of conformity to a given standard. In Noah's case, he conformed himself to God's standard. And it wasn't that he conformed himself to God's standard and then God extended grace to him. No, grace is unearned favor, but grace had an impact on Noah's life. And so he conformed to God's standard, as opposed to the rest of his generation, those who rejected God and his standard. So Noah was a just man. Noah was perfect in his generations. And of course, that does not mean that he was sinless. It's an adjective meaning blameless or complete. And when you look at that word in the Old Testament, half of the times that it's described in the Old Testament, it's used to describe an animal to be sacrificed to the Lord, whether it's a ram or whether it's a bull or a lamb or anything. If it's blameless, it means that there's no hidden flaws. There's no, there's no like it doesn't have a limp or it doesn't have this, this mottled skin or whatever. It's, 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 it's the perfect substitute, perfect sacrifice. There's no hidden flaws, no hypocrisy in Noah's life. You see, Noah loved God with all his heart, with all his understanding, with all his soul, and with all his strength. And again, you contrast that to the generation that he lived in. Every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And then it says, Noah walked with God. That's a verb that metaphorically is describing the pathway or behavior of one's life. The fact that Noah walked with God implies that he was near to God. He was in fellowship with God. He followed God, and he lived his life in daily dependence upon God. That's what it means to walk with God. Again, you contrast that with the rest of his generation. They were corrupt and had corrupted their way. And that word corrupt means to spoil or to ruin, to destroy or to pervert. You see, their hearts were corrupt.
guy building this contraption, this huge contraption in his front yard in preparation for a flood that nobody's like, what? Can you imagine the mocking that he would have endured during those hundred plus or whatever, however many years it took for him to build it? Hebrews 11 says this about Noah, verses six and seven. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So we skip down into chapter 7. Verses 5 through 12. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood, wa- a flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. All the windows of of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. God closed that door. You see, there's a, timely, there's a time to respond to God's grace. When is that time? The time's today. The time's today because none of us have tomorrow guaranteed. You only have today. Jesus said this in Luke 13, verse 24. And 25, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. There's only one opportunity, and that is today, that is now. Well, moving along in this narration, narrative, I should say, verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the, flo- and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. 
Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. On the 17th day of the seventh month, which was about 4,359 years ago, give or take a few, one of the greatest resets this world has ever experienced in history took place. Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, they were able to step out of the ark along with all the other animals that had gone into the ark with them to repopulate a vastly different looking planet than when they went into the ark. Things looked totally, totally different. But as great as this reset was, and can you imagine what that reset would have been like? As great as that reset was, it's still only a picture of the greatest reset of all time and eternity. Now fast forward to about 3,250 years ago. At that time, the children of Israel and God had told Abram, Abraham, he was known as Abram at the time, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So as God is about to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, which would have been a great reset for them, he also reset their calendar. The seventh month would become their first month. In Exodus 12, if you want to turn to Exodus now, Exodus 12 verses 1 and 2 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And to this day, the, Jews have, uh, the Jewish people have two calendars. They're usually known as either the civil or the religious calendars. Well, on the tenth day of that seventh month, which God says now that's going to be the first month, but on the tenth day of that seventh month, called the month of Abib, each family, so they're still in Egypt, each family was to select a male lamb without any blemish, and they were to keep it for four days. And then on the 14th day, they were to slaughter the lamb and put some of its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the door of their homes. And that night, the angel of death was going was gonna to literally pass over all the houses in Egypt and he would kill the firstborn male of every animal and of any household in Egypt that didn't have the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And on that 14th day, the children of Israel would be delivered from bondage in Egypt. But there's something interesting in there I want to show you. So the 14th day, and I'm looking at that story in Exodus, 
the 14th day of the seventh month, the children of Israel left Egypt. The 15th day, you can read about it in Exodus 13, verse 20. It says, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. On the 15th day, they camped in Etham. If you go to Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, the 16th day. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Piharirath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. Then skipping down to verse 9 of Exodus 14. So what's happening here, the children of Israel, they've left Egypt, uh, and, and they've, they've camped one night at one place, and now they're at this other place right by the Red Sea. And Pharaoh starts thinking about it. Man, why did we let those guys go? All that free labor and stuff. And so he gathers his army to pursue the children of Israel. And in verse 9 of chapter 14, it says, So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hariroth. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> and the children of Israel see this cloud of dust coming towards them, and they probably see maybe the, a glinting, you know, the sun shining on some chariots and some shields and stuff, and they're like freaking out. And in verse 13 of chapter 14, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And then in verse 19, something interesting happens. It says, And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near to the other all that night. That was the 16th day. All that night, the angel of the Lord protected them from the Egyptians. On the 17th day is when God told Moses, take your staff and spread it out over the water, and the water is separated, and the children of Israel passed on through the Red Sea on dry land. Verse 30 of chapter 14, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Seashore. On that 17th day, the children of Israel had a great reset. They were no longer slaves, but they also no longer had to fear the Egyptians. And they would now be led by God to the promised land. What a reset. Well, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and the only reason that they wandered 40 years is because they didn't trust God, they didn't believe God. The children of Israel are finally about to enter Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And if you want to go ahead and turn to Joshua, the book of Joshua at this point. So by this time, the children of Israel, you know, they went in there with just a family, right? Um, Jacob and his sons and their, their families. And now leaving Egypt 430 years later, they're about two to three million people strong. It's quite a, quite a congregation, and during the entire 40 years, God in his mercy miraculously provided water 
and provided food for the children of Israel in the form of manna, which the Bible calls it bread from heaven. And it happened during the entire wilderness wandering. I did, I did a little research on this one time. I don't have the facts in front of you. But to feed two to three million people daily, you know how much manna that would have been? It's like a few, like a couple, I don't know how many train loads, train car loads of, of, of manna to feed that many people. Yet God did it faithfully every, every day that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. But they were about to experience a reset again on the 17th day of the seventh month. Look at Joshua 5, verse 10. This is the 14th day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So here they are in what's the seventh seventh month on the uh, 14th day, and they're keeping the Passover. On the 15th day, Joshua 5, verse 11, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and and parched grain on the very same day. So the day after the Passover, now they're eating of the produce on the land. The 16th day, Joshua 5, verse 12, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land that year. And so on the 17th day, from then on, the children of Israel ate the produce of the land of Canaan from that day on. No more manicotti, no more manna muffins or, uh, you know, manna bread, no more manna quiche or manna, I hate quiche, but no one's kidding. No more manna souffle, none of that. From now on, they were they would. I mean, that's a reset. If you've been eating manna for forty years every day, it's like finally something else, you know. <laughs> well, about two thousand five hundred years ago, the Jewish people experienced another great reset, and this one occurred during the Persian Empire. And you can read all about that in the Book of Esther. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Esther. So, at this time. The Persian Empire was in its zenith. And you know the story, if you've ever seen The Night with the King or whatever, that movie that was out a number of years ago. Esther was made queen, a beautiful story. When there was an official under the king whose name was Haman, and he was an Agagite, or Agagite, Agagite, I guess is how you pronounce it, which means he was a descendant of Agag. Now that's a fascinating Bible study, by the way. If you ever want to study about Agag, because uh, if you read about the story of Saul, Saul spared Agag, and one of his descendants is this guy by the name of Haman. Very interesting Bible study. Anyway, so there's this guy, Haman, and he's a bad dude. And Haman, first of all, he hated a guy by the name of Mordecai, which was Esther's cousin. But more than just hating Mordecai, He hated the people of Mordecai, which was the Jewish people. And so Haman sought to destroy all the Jews uh, who were throughout the whole kingdom of King Ahasuerus, who was the king of Persia. And it says in Esther 3, verses 12 through 13, this is the 13th day, not the 14th, the 13th day, the command goes out to destroy all the Jews on a set day. And they've got this day, it's like six months later when they're planning to kill all the Jews. And this command is issued 
on the 13th day. Well, on the 14th day, Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin I mentioned, sends a message to Esther about the plot. Now, what's interesting about that, and you guys probably know this story, but the Persians had a law or a tradition where you couldn't just go into the king and, and say, hey, I want to have a meeting with you. Uh, if, you present, if you presented yourself before the king and, and he didn't want to see you, you'd be executed. So it was, it was like, you know, he didn't like to be bothered a whole lot, I guess. Well, anyways, Esther, and that applied to the queen as well. If she had gone before the king and he didn't want to see her, she'd be executed. You know what's interesting about that? You and I can approach God any time, right? We can boldly come before the throne of grace to find help at any time. And that's the king of kings. Man, we, have a, we serve a loving God. Anyways, on the 14th day, and you can read about it in Exodus uh, excuse me, Esther 4, verse 16. Esther says this to Mordecai, or sends a message to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so they start fasting. On the 15th day, they're fasting. On the 16th day, in Esther 5, verse 1, Esther presents herself before the king and praise God, he accepts her. He allows her to come before him. And so in verse 4, Esther says this, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for them. And so they come to the banquet. And Haman is like, it's like, you know, whoa, man, they're recognizing me for my, you know, my skills, my ability, who I am or whatever. And he's all puffed up with pride. And so he and the king, it's just him, the king and the queen at this banquet. Verse 8, at the banquet, she says this, If it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow, which will be the 17th day, I will do as the king has said. And then something happens on that night of the 16th day in chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king couldn't sleep. And so he did what maybe some of you do when you can't sleep. You start reading a book, right? Well, he didn't have to read a book because he's the king. You could have people read to him. I, you know, if I, wanted to, if I really wanted to act like a king, I could wake up Teresa. Hey, wake up, man. Read me. Read to me out of the Bible. She'd say, you know, she, well, well, you wouldn't want to know what she'd say. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to know what she would say. <laughs> So he has these guys read to him the history books. That's a good thing to put you to sleep. So he's reading the history books. I actually love history, by the way. And, uh, and uh, they start reading about this thing, about this incident where Mordecai had heard about a plot against the king, and he revealed the plot to the, to the king's officials, and they got the conspirators and killed them, and it saved the life of the king. And, and, and he's hearing this story, and he goes, did we ever do anything for that guy? They're like, no, we didn't do anything. He goes, well, we need to do something. And so that morning on the 17th day, the king says to Haman, hey, Haman, come here. What do we do for the guy that I, what do I do if I want to really want to honor somebody? And you know, Haman's like, well, let me think about it. First, you buy him a suit coat. No, um, you put some fancy clothes on him. You know, you, you set him up on your horse and ride, parade him through town and have everybody worship him and stuff. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. And the king says, man, great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. 
I love that. You know, God's got a sense of humor. Anyways, so on the 17th day, Haman is forced to honor Mordecai. And at that banquet on the 17th day, he's exposed for who he is and what he's planning to do. And Satan, because this was a satanic plot, it wasn't just Haman, it was a satanic plot to annihilate the Jews. Why? Because the Messiah would come to the Jews. Satan's plan to annihilate the Jews is thwarted. And even to this day, the Jewish people celebrate that great reset. They call it Purim. But again, the greatest reset of all time and eternity occurred also on the 17th day of the seventh month in 32 AD. On that 10th day of the seventh month, the Jewish people, you know, they're, they're, they're preparing for the Passover, and so they're supposed to take a lamb on that day, the 10th day, and they're supposed to examine it for blemishes, see if there's anything wrong with it, and they keep it for four days. So over those four days, they're kind of making sure that this lamb's okay to sacrifice at the Passover. Well, it just so happens on that 10th day of the seventh month that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he presented himself to be examined for blemishes. And as try as they might, the chief priests and the scribes, they were checking, man, there's got to be some flaw in his character. There's got to be something. They try to trip him up, and they, they try to find some, 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 something that they could blame him. They couldn't find anything. The common Jewish people couldn't find anything wrong with them. Even Pilate and the Romans and even King Herod couldn't find anything. There's no blemishes. And on the 14th day, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's the 14th day. It's interesting. The 15th day would be the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 16th day was the Sabbath. The 17th day was the first day of the week, which we celebrate here as Sunday. And I want to read this to you. I, read, I didn't have these on my notes here. There's the Sabbath. There, there we go. <laughs> Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now what's also interesting about the 17th day, it also happens to be the Jewish feast of first fruits. And that's a celebration of the coming harvest and also a giving thanks uh, for the harvest, that the barley harvest, which was the first harvest. And so the idea was to dedicate those first ripened stalks of grain to God in anticipation of a greater harvest. Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
You know, I love studying things like that because it's like, is that just coincidence? You know, my, you know, somebody must have really put a lot of thought in to write the Bible, you know. So, yeah, God did because it's true. None of that is coincidental. It's God's plan. And, you know, that's God's way to reveal to you and I that the Bible is true. Every word of it is true. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is and always will be the greatest reset. There's nothing that's going to top that. Because Jesus was fully man, why, did he, why was he fully man? So that he could die in your and my place as a man. So he could pay the price for us as a man. And because Jesus was sinless, his death was the perfect substitution for our sin. If I died for you, it'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd die, period. It'd be like, okay, he died. It wouldn't, admit, it wouldn't do anything. But because Jesus Christ was sinless, he was the perfect substitution. And because Jesus is fully God, man, the grave couldn't hold him. He conquered sin and death. And because Jesus rose from the dead, his, it's proof that his sacrifice for sin was accepted. Because if, if there was a flaw or a blemish, he would have just stayed in the grave. But because, because he rose from the dead, it proves that his sacrifice was accepted. And what that means for you and I is that we can be justified. In other words, it's just a fancy way of saying God looks at you and I as though we never sinned. Wouldn't you like that kind of a reset in your life? I think back all the junk that I did. Man, I'm like, man, I, I'm a, I, I don't even, you know, some people like, like to share their boastimonies or whatever, you know, they call it, where it's like, you know, I was an axe murderer, and then I did this or that, and then I came to faith on the Lord, you know. There's things I just don't want to share because I'm ashamed of them. I, I don't want to boast. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to know some of the stuff because I'm so ashamed of them. But praise God, I've been justified by Jesus Christ. God looks at me and says, man, what are you talking about? I've forgiven all that. I've washed that away. And because Jesus is alive, he offers you and I the opportunity to reset our lives. I love what Jesus says in Revelation 21, verses 5 and 6. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And so for those of you that are here this morning, maybe you're listening to this on a live stream, or maybe you're going to listen to this later on on our website. Do you want to reset this morning? Man, I'll take a reset anytime. I'd love a do-over. And praise God, through Jesus Christ, you can have that do-over. You can have that reset how do you do that? It's really simple. It's as simple as A, B, C. <laughs> First of all, A, admit that you're a sinner. Just acknowledge that you're a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody that doesn't sin. We've all sinned. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
In John 1.12, it says, For as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's acknowledging your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and C, calling upon the Lord in prayer. Coming to him, asking him to forgive you of your sin, to come into your heart to be your Lord and your Savior. And you know, the Bible has a promise. In Romans 10, 13, it says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to have you guys all stand up this morning. And you worship team can stay back there for a minute. Don't come up yet. I am so thrilled that you're here this morning. And I'm thrilled for you that joined us on the live stream. And I don't know everybody here. I'd like to get to know everybody here. But I don't know where you're at with the Lord. And I just want to give you an opportunity this morning because today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, say, if you'd like to have that reset in your life, I'm going to ask you to come forward and I want to pray with you to receive Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, there was a time in my life, I gave my life to the Lord when I was, uh, well, I was just summer of sixth grade. And then I went into those turbulent teenager years and uh, man, I tell you, I walked far from the Lord all the way through high school, all the way into, in, into my enlistment in the military. I was still not walking with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, God got a hold of me. He pursued me. I wasn't pursuing him. He pursued me. Maybe you're here today, happenstance, but it's not happenstance. God has you here for a purpose. He wants you to hear his spirit speaking to him, speaking to you. And you know, there was a time where I, I had given my heart to the Lord, but I had messed up so much. I needed a reset. So I cried out to the Lord, and he reset. He forgave me of my sins. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I mean, think about that. Not just forgiven, but cleansed. You can walk. You can walk out of here just like Noah coming out of the ark, man. A brand new world. You can come out and leave this place here, a brand new person. How cool is that? I'll have you guys close your eyes. If anybody wants to have that reset, whether it's giving your heart to the Lord for the first time, or maybe you just want a reset today, this morning. You know, there's even times when, I, you know, I've, I've blown it, I've, I've yelled at my wife or whatever, or I did something and I've, I, you know, did something or, you know, hit my nail and cussed or something. It's like, man, Lord, please, please forgive me. And he, you know what, he's so gracious, he gives me a reset. Every day, every time I turn to him, he gives the reset. If you'd like a reset this morning, you can just raise your hand and I'll pray for you this morning. Anybody here want a reset? All right, praise God, praise the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see the hands, but more importantly, you see the hearts of those, Lord, that are calling out this morning and saying, I, Lord, I want that reset. Lord, we thank you that we can come and we can ask for you to forgive our sins. Lord, we thank you that the blood that you shed 2,000 years ago is so powerful that it, even today, it still washes away sins. It is that potent. Lord, we thank you for your blood shed for us. Lord, I thank you for those that want that reset. And Lord, I just pray even now, Lord, you see their hearts. Lord, I pray that as they leave here this morning, they would leave once more a new creation in Christ. 
Lord, we thank you for those do-overs that you give us. Lord, we thank you that, uh, Lord, you give us the opportunity to uh, be right with you once more. And so I pray for these, Lord, that raise their hands. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that uh, as they leave here, your Holy Spirit would just fill their hearts, flood them with your spirit. Lord, that they might know that you have heard them and that, Lord, uh, that you would lead them from this day on forward. So I thank you and praise you. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you could stay standing, we'll have the worship team come up, and we're going to close uh, with this last song.